Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. Happy whatever day of the week it is, my friends. I've lost count, quite frankly. Um, and we're recording this on a Monday, so you know that gives you a sense of how well my week's going. Um, but this is going to be a, a cracker. This is one to blow away the cobwebs from the weekend. We're joined by Anne Fletcher. She's a historian and writer. She's worked in the heritage sector, including sites like Hampton Court Palace, St Paul's Cathedral and Bletchley Park. Not jealous in the slightest to, uh, to, for you to have worked in those places. Uh, but she's also the author of Widows of the Ice, the women that Scott's Antarctic expedition left behind, which was the focus of a cracking interview a little while back. But also she's written From the Mill to Monte Carlo, which is a little bit of a, a, a it's a, it's a, how do, how am I going to describe this? This is, this is really bad podcasting. Apologies. And it's, no, it's hard. It's like it a, is hard. It it's is hard to describe. It's a mystery wrapped in an enigma. It's a sort oh. of social history. It's a sort of, well, it's a biography, but it's yeah. also a sort of detective story because it's as much about how I got to the bottom of the story as it is the story itself. I mean, the important thing for people to take away is that it's brilliant. I'm going to indicate oh, how it's brilliant um, <laughs> over the course of this. But before you do, how are you doing? How are you coping with this horrifically hot weather? Not good. No, I'm a, I'm a, a redhead. And so um, this is not my natural environment. So generally it's curtains shut and stay indoors. Have you turned so, lobster grinch. yet? No, that's, I make sure I'm not, you see, because otherwise I would be a lobster. I go from white to lobster. So I, I know my limits. Yeah, there are only two shades for ginger people. Ginger yes. Chris, our, our boaty expert, would would sympathise entirely. Absolutely right. <laughs> we should probably do some history, I suppose, shouldn't we? Yes. Rather than being very yes. British and complaining, oh, it's too hot. Um, so this book, it's the story of Joseph Hobson Jaeger. Jaeger or Jagger? Jagger. Jagger. Actually, it's ah. Jagger. It's a Yorkshire name. It's Jagger. So as it's... in as in Mick. There we go. Um, mm. One of the men who, get this, breaks the banks at Monte Carlo, folks. You don't get many who manage to do that along the way. But as you've kind of hinted at, he's got an unusual origin story, right? So tell us about his upbringing and life long before the roulette table. Okay, well, he's, um, I think probably when you mention Monte Carlo, people immediately think of, you know, the high life, very exclusive people, royalty, aristocracy, and it is all of those things, was there, that is now. But Joseph is 
a Yorkshireman, a working class Yorkshireman, Victorian, who works in the mills of Bradford. And he starts working as a child, as most of his family and most of his predecessors did. And it's only when he gets into his 40s that he finds himself in a situation where he goes to Monte Carlo. But yeah, very unusual backstory for somebody who ends up there. Tell us about his his life, though. I mean, life in a, a mill in a Yorkshire town. What's what's he doing day to day? I mean, Yorkshire is stunning part of the the world. Mm. Having just come back there from holiday, um, the the Yorkshire countryside did try to kill me, people, through oh. the medium of hay fever. Oh, okay. Um, so thanks for that, Yorkshire. Um, but that's nothing on the people. It's just the nature of the grass in the region that just despises me. Um, petty ailments aside. What's it like to be growing up in Yorkshire during this time? What's it like to be working in the mills? Well, Victorian Bradford, you wouldn't have had hay fever as a problem, I don't think. I don't think you'd see much greenery. So there's a, a picture that's actually in my book, which was in the London Illustrated News, which is of Bradford at around this time. And it's a sea of chimneys. There were about 200 factories in the city belching out smoke day and night. And this photo was published for the, for the benefit of the southerners saying, don't worry, the city's not really on fire. So it's your absolutely archetypal industrial revolution thriving city. So the, the mills are working day and night. The, the, they're, they're pumping out their, you know, gas and pollution and all the stuff. And obviously, if you're a mill owner, it's absolutely great because you're earning lots of money. Pretty well everybody else is living in fairly squalid conditions. But it's but the city itself is booming. It's the it's the world center of wool production. So it's incredibly successful and Joseph and his family and everybody else they're part of this wool industry so the wool is coming in from the surrounding areas and the factories are turning it into fabrics and those fabrics are being exported all over the world and Joseph's little part in this process was his mother was a a spinner and his wife was a weaver but his job was a finisher and that meant anything from smoothing the fabric down to dyeing it or bleaching it so trying to sort of get a, a, a nice surface or nice pattern onto the fabric at the end so that was his role and he worked his way up from fairly humble to, to, to actually having his own little business so what we probably call a freelancer now and, and offering his services to the mills as a finisher and ultimately set up on his own doing that so he was doing quite well as as things go he you know he pulled himself up to that that situation it's remarkable that to this day you can see that legacy built into the Yorkshire landscape. You know, you, you almost yeah. can't go anywhere without tripping over some kind of mill. Um, yeah, absolutely. And it, yeah. it was quite funny that almost every mill seems to lay claim to being one of the largest mills anywhere in Yorkshire. And that they've reached yeah. the point where you just sort of start to not believe <laughs> people. Um, yeah, yeah this, were, this was uh, an industry that w- was integral to the region yeah absolutely absolutely in the way that cotton was in manchester it was wool in bradford so the whole city surrounding villages everybody's involved in this and it's because the you know the geology is so perfect there's running water for steam there's grassland for sheep it's the perfect thing and it takes over from from east anglia which had been the big medieval center for wool production it you know by the 19th century it's all happening here in yorkshire so it is yeah it's you know it's it's a great city of empire that's what we forget I think at that time um I do pity though anybody who had to transport 
the end product uh, and, and didn't have access to a railway because I was in house, yes. you know, Bronte yeah. country and, and boy, those hills, um, yeah. how the Brontes went on long moor walks <laughs> beats me because, <laughs> I mean, five minutes and I was done. A lot <laughs> of walks, So I'm used to walking fields. Um, <laughs> let's, let's talk about Joseph again, though. Um, because if you're spending your life in the mill, the roulette table doesn't necessarily spring to mind no, as no. the next place to sort of set your sights on. So no. at what point does he start thinking about life beyond Yorkshire and start looking at the casinos and the roulette wheel and Monte Carlo as a way of making a fortune? Well, I think your question is one of the things that's, that was a problem for me in researching this book because when I started to look into it, I found it very difficult to understand why he would have gone, how he could have got there, how it could. It seemed an insurmountable thing. I mean, the first thing is that gambling in public had been illegal since the reign of George III. So he would never have played roulette, probably never even seen a roulette table. It's not something that people did. As you mentioned, there's no, you know, there are no trains at this point. It was very hard to get to places. Getting to Monte Carlo, it was difficult. He'd almost certainly never been out of, I mean, he'd been across the Pennines, but he hadn't really been very far. So he wouldn't have spoken French. So all of this, all of these things, plus he's also, he's a Methodist and gambling is forbidden. So all these things were stacking up when I was doing the research and thinking, well, how could this possibly be that he could get there? And I couldn't even understand why he wants to go because it's the place you went, you know, Queen Victoria hated it, but the Prince of Wales went there, you know, you've got your Russian aristocrats. You've got, it's not a place a working class Yorkshireman would go. Um, but I got uncovered the motive that, that I believe is you know, what encouraged him to, to, well, to put him in a position where he might consider it. And that is that he was facing bankruptcy. Uh, he'd entered into a business. He'd gone across the Pennines into, into Manchester to take his finishing skills and apply them to cotton, which is very logical. But he just did it at the wrong time. And it was just at the time when the cotton boom was collapsing, the American Civil War breaks out, the whole industry is is devastated. And so he's in a a very, very serious financial situation. So that seemed to me a really strong motive to want to make a lot of money very quickly. But to take a leap from wanting to make lots of money very quickly to I'm gonna go and play in roulette, in Monte Carlo is a massive leap, isn't it? It is. It's a ballsy move as well. It's very a ballsy. Highly technical term being yeah. exhibited on history right there. <laughs> yeah. But it is a ballsy move. And yeah. um, the scope for everything to go horrifically wrong, if you yeah. haven't worked this out. And there is, this is the point, isn't it? That there's, we'll get onto this uh, in a moment, but there's a reasoning behind him deciding to do this rather than just, hey, I've got a bit of money, let's just go and blow it on the horses. You know, oh, yeah, it's not that at all. You're quite it's, right. It's I mean, he's got, he's got no money. He's, and, and what we're talking about here is a time when, of course, you face debtors' prison. He's got four children. The youngest is two. So this is a predicament that's not just about him having no money. It's about his entire family going into debtors' prison. So it's a very big motive to do something desperate, really. But I think he made a very calculated move. And as you say, it is a ballsy move because he'd never seen a roulette table. I'm sure he never played it. Um, And 
I mean, with a bit of background on what was happening really in, in Monte Carlo. Monte Carlo is the only place you could play roulette in Europe. And they'd got it sus. They understood how the game worked. They never lost, you know, they, yes, they lost occasionally. But Francois Blanc, who ran the casino, his mantra was, you know, they'll always come back. So you're pitting yourself up against an organisation that knows how to make money and, and has geared everything around that. It's very, very hard to do. And breaking the bank means that you win so much on one roulette table that there isn't enough money under the table to, to pay everybody off. So they have to wait until they can go down to the sellers and bring all the gold and silver up and restock the table. So it did happen, not very often, there was more than one man who did it, but it was a rare thing. We'll get on to individuals who did it in, in mm. a bit, I think, because that's a, a really interesting kind of thing. And also the, the ways that different people approached trying to do that. Um, you do make a really good point that, you know, banks are not charities. No. So, well, banks aren't charities, but more importantly, casinos are not charities. Um, and, and so as a result, you know, the table wins. The table always wins in the end. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's the thing you have to bear in mind with gambling. And that's mm. the whole thing about, you know, if it's not being fun for you, you need to stop because chasing your losses. Yeah, you're never going to just only ever yeah. play with what you can afford to lose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's talk about casino culture within this period. You know, you've got, mm. as you said, this ban within uh, Britain. It's the only place in Europe where you can play roulette. Yeah. So you'd imagine it attracts a particular class, you know, exclusive environments. Talk us through the kinds of people who are frequenting Monte so, Carlo. yeah, you're right. There's the very, you know, there's the the very, every, you would expect, you know, royalty, uh, archdukes, Lord this, Lord, you know, of course, the aristocracy, it's been for some time a place that they'll go and overwinter. So they're all there. The really important thing is that monogasques, the people who are resident in, in Monte Carlo, are not allowed to go in. They because they don't want their own people to lose money. So the casino does not admit anyone who is not a foreigner. So if everybody for a start is going to be uh, has traveled there for some reason. There are there are a mix of classes. I mean, that that very high echelon of people will have the private rooms within the casino. Then there's the more public rooms. But people don't want their servants going there. They're, the casino is reluctant to let soldiers or the clergy in because they don't want them to lose their money. So there is a mix of classes, but it's been a bit filtered out as to who's there. But the, but the absolute golden rule is you have to pay to go in, which is still the case, and you have to be dressed appropriately. So that means for Joseph, you've got to have a frock coat and you've got to look smart. So there's an investment necessary in even getting through the door. And I think once you're in, you probably look reasonably like everybody else. You know, you're not going to stick out like a sore thumb because you've had to invest in in the kit. So I think that's the challenge. A man facing bankruptcy, you know, he's got to look the part, pay to get in and then pay every time he wants to gamble as well, because there's a minimum amount. So it's, uh, you know, it's an expensive place to be. It is. But I mean, he may be able to sort of make himself look the part. But, you know, somebody starts up a conversation with him and he's going to mm. come out with this rich, wonderful, I have to say, Yorkshire accent. Yeah. How do people react to that? Because I bet that's not kind of what they're expecting. Well, again, I think there is probably people from, well, there are people from all over the world. So in those big, ga- you know, the big gaming room, you probably are used to hearing all sorts of accents. And I would imagine, I mean, having been, I've 
been and gambled a very very tiny amount in the room that he gambled in it's not about it's not a massive room there were four tables um people don't really talk you're concentrating so I think you can slip in reasonably you know I don't think anyone's particular I think the people who are watching you are the casino security people so they're used to people from all over the world what they're looking for is cheats and somebody who's playing the system so you just have to try and put them off your scent I guess um so yeah I think you can you can if you you know you look right you know how to play the game you can find your way in there reasonably well yeah I mean Ocean's Eleven is kind of springing to mind as we're starting to kind of move this conversation towards casinos and and their nature um I suppose it's the case that you know any money's money right and yeah your money is yeah, good yeah. enough I'll, I'll yeah. take it in whatever form it comes exactly yeah I mean all you know all that's required of you is that you you know you you don't cheat I suppose you know they want your money um you just have to play correctly so we tease at the start that he manages to break the bank he has a technique for doing that mm. um for beating the odds of yeah. the table now before we talk sort of specifics Tell us a bit about those who've achieved it beforehand, because, you know, this this is a rare achievement. Um, They are on the lookout for people who are cheating the system. Um, So talk us through some of the others who manage it, how they manage it, Um, because like I say, quite often these methods can be underhand, can't they? Usually, yes, they are. So, well, yes. So the big winners, the the most famous winner, the man that the song is written about, the man who broke the Bank of Monte Carlo, is Charles Wells. And he's a very good example because he plays with money that he has defrauded from other people. So he's got this line in uh, patents. You know, he gets patents cleared. And then he goes to rich people and says, you know, if you give me money, I can get this amazing machine made. So he, from the beginning, and that's a very common trait, is that the money isn't necessarily your own that you're putting on the table. And you haven't necessarily told the people whose money it is that that's what's happening to it. So it is, yeah, it usually starts in that sort of fairly corrupt sort of way. Um, The way that people played wasn't always corrupt but generally you, you know you had to you had to play the system to win to win big but all of the systems that existed the casino knew about there were 40 odd and they all relied on probability so you went from the the sort of slightly bonkers ones where you know if I bring a rabbit's foot and rub my neighbor's head three times you know I'll win up to the people who really understood probability and just thought uh, you know, I understand that I can eventually win if I keep playing. So there are all sorts of systems that, you know, you play the red three times then you do the black and then you do the four of this and then you reduce your fee by this and you do. So it was all, you know, lots of things written and, and talked about. But of course, with probability, you just have to keep going. And if you keep going, you'll win. But the casino always has time and money on its side. So they can always outplay anybody, which is why it's still hard to do. Um, but yeah, so that you know, there are some famous ones who come in generally with other people's money. Generally, they win and then they can't walk away. They come back and they lose it all. Um, some end up in prison, like Charles Wells. I mean, he is. So he's he's the absolutely archetypal one. You know, he then 
takes all this money, buys an enormous yacht, sort of goes on the run, eventually gets caught. So they are, you know, they become notorious, these people, and they are recognised by the casino. They get to know who they are. So there's a, a another guy, a famous Spanish guy, who's eventually recognised. They just don't let him come in anymore. And that's the end of his his career uh, because the security is so good. So, yeah, there's generally slightly dodgy individuals and commonly end up with nothing having done this. But what's interesting is that the casino does publicise these massive wins just in the way that the National Lottery publicises winners, because it's a really good way of saying to everybody else, look, you can win. They don't say these people have lost all the money and you know, they say, look at this, this guy's won. So Charles Wells is all over the newspapers because it suits the casino, really, for people to think it's a possibility. It could be you. So that's how people hear about these big wins through the newspapers. Yeah, it's the same as sort of celebrity culture today, isn't it? Yeah. The idea that, look, you, this is where you can go, but mm. then you just don't mention the fact that the vast majority. Yeah, it doesn't end well. No, it doesn't <laughs> end well. You know, the odds are, are not in your favour. So no. quite a phrase from the Hunger Games. Um, exactly. <laughs> so most of them are underhand. Joseph's not underhand. And that's an important one to emphasise, which is part of what makes this it so does. interesting. Now, we want people to find out how he did it by buying the book. I'm going to resist the usual rant about where you need to buy that book. <laughs> people, you know my views on Amazon. We shall move swiftly on. Um, but do give us a little bit of a teaser on what was involved, because people are going to want to kind of have that little, that little hook. Yeah, you're right. I don't want to spoil it, because it's like telling you the, you know, the key point in a movie, isn't it? It's a spoiler. Um, but yeah, what, you're absolutely right. He, as far as I know, he is the only man to have broken the bank legally and to have kept all the money and which as we've just the you know, background of what I've just explained that's quite unusual uh, he kept all the money because he was a canny Yorkshireman who'd gone there because he needed the money and he knew when to walk away so that's why he you know he'd gone there he hadn't gone there just to gamble and have a laugh he needed that money he walked away but the way that the reason that he I mean this goes back to why he went there in the first place why would you come up with this crazy idea what what happened I believe and it took a lot of unraveling was that faced with this desperate financial situation he just came up with this crazy idea and he made a link between the factory where he worked this industrialized factory and the roulette tables in Monte Carlo and I'll say no more than that so he came up with an idea a completely legal idea that he could beat the tables. And he didn't know for sure it would work because he couldn't practice it playing at home. He couldn't look at a wheel and be sure, but he was confident enough, he was sure enough, or perhaps desperate enough as well, that he raised the money and it took maybe, well, I think it might be as much as 20 years, could be 15, 20 years, to, to raise the money and to, to formulate this plan and to go. So yes, he's ballsy and yes, he's entrepreneurial, but he's also, you know, incredibly single minded. He's, he's fixed on this idea now as the way to save his family. And of course, he's proved correct. It does work. He is. Um, and it does. Before we talk about um, the, the impact, which, as you can imagine, is quite substantial. Can I just kind mm. of dig into what you said there about his mm. character and this sort of you kind of got these these stereotypes that we love to push out there are sort of reserved Yorkshiremen and 
um, you, you could cr- construct this sort of caricature hmm. of, of a guy at the roulette table. In terms of his character, do you think he was qu- quite unique in terms of his own kind of qualities? You talked about how he's, he's a Methodist. He's kind of uh, pushed by the fact that he needs this money. He's got his family to think about. Do you think that was the key to his success, that he then didn't push things too far? Um, or do you think there were other just innate qualities about this guy that just made him a bit better suited, actually, to trying your luck? And, and it's that classic thing that those who necessarily aren't actively seeking the big, the big prize, but know when to cut their losses and run, are perhaps the ones who are, who are better suited to success ultimately. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's hard to know, isn't it, with people that you'll never meet and are, and, and all, all I can say is, having looked at the circumstances and all the things we've talked about, how absolutely crazy this idea is. Crazy idea, almost impossible for a man like that to even get there. And as I say, there were points in, this took me 10 years to get this whole story in place. There were points where I thought, oh, this is made up. This is this is bonkers. So the fact that he did go and he did do all these things does say a lot about his character, doesn't it? It does say that he was, I mean, incredibly confident of his own. I mean, he must have been intelligent, obviously not incredibly well educated as, as he wouldn't have been, but a clever man who was confident enough in his ability to to think, you know, I may I've got something here. Um, and persevered enough to go. So you say all of those qualities, which are all sort of steely, brilliant qualities. But of course, he's a human being as well. And I, you know, what I don't know is when he got there, and I don't want to go into it, because again, this is in the book about the time it took, the amount of time he spent there, what might have happened when he was there, all of those things. It's a possibility that when he, when he got there, he's like, I quite like all this. And it's quite an intoxicating world it's exciting isn't it he's in this and it's possible that he was quite seduced by all of that and he certainly didn't he certainly there's a sort of cat and mouse with the casino and him he wins a bit loses a bit wins a bit loses a bit you know while he's working out what he's doing and while they're working out what he's doing and ultimately walks away so it's not as straightforward as you know he goes in there with a plan he's successful and he leaves there's there must be moments when 
hits him down, but he, you know, he might be tempted. He might have been tempted to stay longer than he should have done. You know, who knows? But at the end of it, he does, you know, he does manage to walk away. And as far as I know, never goes back, just returns to where he'd always been and slots back in. So again, that says quite a lot about, you know, his head wasn't turned permanently by all of this. So ultimately that, that desire to, to get back and sort his family out, won out over anything else. Yeah, I mean, Oceans, an Oceans George Clooney film, this sort of kind of isn't, but also sort of kind of is. Um, yeah. <laughs> because it, it's not, you know, one night and bang, no. here's, the, here's the big hit. No. Um, what do the family make of it, though? Because, you know, you, you, you've got this family in Yorkshire and you're heading off to Monte Carlo and you're, you're yeah. literally kind of gambling everything, even though yeah. he thinks it's a calculated risk. Do we know? what his family made of it and is we can his... only, well we, we we can guess some things and we we know a bit of other things um we can only guess what his wife Matilda may have thought so they have four children he's lost his business she's you know he's a peace taker in which means you know doing bits of cloth here and there you know they're in a very bad predicament and I, I think we can only imagine how she might have felt when he said you know I'm good this is my plan I'm going to go to Monte Carlo. I'm going to do this. I'm sure there must have been arguments. There must have been moments of, you know, hers. But in the end, he does go. She may not have been happy about it. He's away for a period of time. So she's left to deal with everything on her own. There must have been stresses and strains around the marriage. It can't have been easy. And of course, while he's away, there's no email, there's no texts. She's got no idea. You know, he could have gone in the first day and blown the lot. She's got no idea how it's going either. So I think it's a lot. It was a lot to ask of her. Um, and we'll never know because she's one of these sort of Victorian women who've working class women who've just disappeared from sight. We'll never know what she made of all of that. But he does come back. There is money she's comfortable after that so whether she thought that was okay but of course she's also a Methodist and there is there is you know a lot of feeling within that community that you know this wouldn't have been the right thing to do and one thing I did discover in talking to descendants family members that I met during this process was that some of them who remembered or had experience of told them stories by his son and his son was that he'd felt very ashamed of all of this, this sense of shame. And those members of the family that benefited a bit more than others from this money, and again, that's all in the book, why that happens, always felt a little bit of a sort of shame attached to the money. Now, whether that was because he was ashamed that he'd gone bankrupt or whether it was ashamed, he was ashamed of the way he'd done it. But all this stuff came into it, you know, that he um, perhaps... I don't know they thought it was dirty money or but not great and they certainly didn't show off about it it wasn't certainly wasn't something where they made a big show so I think that's you know partly his personality but also this feeling slightly of you know having been so desperate he had to do this it can't have been easy in that community no it really can't but let's talk about that impact mm. um because the clues in in the title you know the man yep. who broke the bank he succeeds um so how does that, it sounds like an inane question, but, you know, this has the potential to change people yes, as well as their financial yeah. circumstances. So how yeah. does that change things for him, both in terms of his his life, for sure, um, but also in terms of, you know, the fact that you've got this 
income and yeah. you've got this wealth and you know you can you can choose to do what you do with your life and some people respond in different ways to others exactly and I well I think what's interesting is when I first started obviously I talked to lots of people in the family and one of the stories I was told was oh we bought a big fancy house and and then he you know that and I a lot of the family stories obviously you you get to the bottom of and find elements aren't true they've just been passed down and they've changed and they, he didn't buy a big fancy house at all so he came back to the part of Bradford where Matilda had been living while he was away moved back into the house that they'd been renting the very first thing he did was he bought the house and then he bought the one next door and the one next door to that and he carried on buying houses and I've traced 33 houses little houses sometimes whole streets all back to backs but all within walking distance of this original house so the way it changed their lives was that he and Matilda didn't have to work anymore that he was able to put his children into these houses so his his daughters and his daughters-in-law were able to stop work and raise their children his sons and his sons-in-law carried on working but they were off the poverty like you know they weren't in danger anymore and the women of the family had the choice then whether they wanted to work or, or look after their families or what they wanted to do so it changed the family in that way and of course what it also meant was that when he died these properties and the rent that they brought in was passed on down through the children. So there were trust funds. So to the outside world, it didn't look terribly different. He, for many years, was still, then he bought the house across the road, which was slightly fancier, had an indoor toilet and had an upstairs. And that's where he lived till he died. So the outside world, it doesn't look massively different, but into, you know, to the family, the family economy was massively different in that they were, you know, they were saved and they were safe and they had this nest egg, this, these properties that carried on. Some in the families, in the family up to the 1960s, um, I was able to trace. So that's the big difference. He did achieve what he set out to do, which was to save the finances of the family. And in terms of how people treat him, I mean, we talked about sort of the shame and hmm. this Methodist community and, and the sort of potential stigma attached to how he did this. But at the same time, with a big windfall comes the potential for false friends, you know, people who go, yes. well, you know, I'll yeah. just chum me up to you because now you've got money and that will rub mm. off on me. Do we have any evidence of that being the case? We don't. What we don't know is who actually knew, because, as I say, he didn't suddenly go and buy a lot. He wasn't he wasn't conspicuously wealthy at all. It's possible that a lot of people just didn't know at all. It wasn't in the newspapers. He didn't talk about it. I know he certainly paid off some of the money that he borrowed from people. He gave little gifts of money to friends and family because I've got some records of that. But I'm not sure how much of the community, it was possible he could have just come back and been incredibly, probably was incredibly discreet, which is why this story has been so hard to get to the bottom of because it's known locally. It's still known locally, little bits of it. And he's still sort of talked about locally, but it's never become a big, big story. So, yeah, I doubt he was, you know, I I don't think he was shunned. I don't think he would have felt, you know, he might have been uncomfortable, I suppose, with the religious community. You you would have known a little bit about it. And maybe he made it up to them with donations. I don't know. We'll never know. But certainly he wasn't conspicuous. I think it's quite possible that quite a lot of people just didn't know. And what about the gambling industry? Um... Because, you know, 
suddenly they've got a problem, right? Mm. Uh, along yeah. comes this guy who suddenly got this great idea and it works. And yeah. they don't want that to become the norm no. because then you've beaten the game and you the have. game can't be played. No. So, I mean, his legacy is still felt today, as I understand it. Is that right? It is. It is. And again, I'll t- I, without ruining the how he did, I'll tell you one Yeah, one thing, which is that, uh, that spirit levels, on which are on every roulette table across the world, were brought in after Joseph won. And, uh, of course, one of the reasons why his story wasn't in the newspaper like Charles Wells's was, was that Casino didn't want to broadcast it, as you quite rightly say. This is one of those winners that he really didn't want people to say he's not in any. They're not promoting his story like they did Charles Wells. They don't want anyone to know this. So I think they, the Casino was held by the fact that he was discreet and didn't want to talk about it, too. So the whole thing just sort of disappears but yeah they you know they took them a while to work out what he was doing once they did they put measures in place which meant you couldn't do it again and you know it's not possible now what's really interesting is that there were a spate of websites and there have always been a spate of websites that talk about the Jagger method and they quote the numbers that he played and you know you can buy this and it's all alone and nonsense because it you know you couldn't possibly use this method now and the numbers as far as I know somebody's made those up and just put them on there but it's, it's really interesting this idea that um yeah that you can still you know can still do, but no they, they've absolutely closed it down they worked it out and closed it down so you know his system worked for a moment in a certain place and uh no more there you go folks regrettably if you buy the book you won't come up with your own way no um, i'm always really well, keen might, to say that you, you yeah. might be uh you might be inspired <laughs> to come up with your own way but i'm afraid this isn't like a lottery ticket style book <laughs> It's really not. And, I, you know, I say that to somebody I didn't. Obviously, I got none of this money. And, I, it, you know, it is not that. They, yeah, it's absolutely that. I've always keep, keep to say that. Yeah, it is not. This is not a way to make money now. Absolutely. Did you try it when you went there? Did you just sort of have a little go? and? and oh, I don't get Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I am <laughs> desperately cautious. So I, I did the, you know, decide how much money I'm prepared to lose. And then enjoy it. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was there were people next to me throwing, um, you know, huge amounts of money, you know, hundreds, in one case, thousands of euros down on each spin. I mean, vast, vast amounts of money. So I play, you know, I actually did walk away with 90 euros profit. So I'm quite pleased. That's not but bad. being cautious. That's not bad. That's not but that's bad. with no system to utterly random, just thinking I'll go for the, this, you know, obviously, I don't know. Yeah, no, but it, but it's it's quite, it's quite, a, it, it was an experience to play it and to realise, God, how terrifying this must have been actually for him mm-hmm. to wonder if it was going to work. Considering how much was, was riding on it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Um, I want to touch on the personal element here because there is a, a personal note to this what made you want to write this story because you talked about how you know 10 years in the making yeah what kept you going well he's Joseph is my great 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 uncle and I was brought up on the story my dad was really really fascinated by it so as a child I was told this story all the time and he started to research it in the pre-internet days so there was only so far he could go and when he just died I decided I would take it on and um, with the advantage of the internet and all of that. So that was my inspiration, really, was to finish it off for my dad and see where we could get to with it. And I wasn't sure it was going to end up as a book, but I was delighted it did. But And, and what happened in, in that process, really, was I've met branches of the family tree that I didn't know existed. 
And I've discovered that there were fragments of the story in each of those branches and sort of by putting them together and then doing work around that, that's what's enabled me to get to the bottom of it all. So I've now got a much bigger, broader Jagger family, which is great. That's fantastic, because this was what I was puzzling about as you know we were kind of going through the interview that you talk to a normal historian and they go, oh, yeah, you know, newspaper sources and all the rest of it. But, you know, that's that's the key, isn't it? That you there's yeah. there's little yeah. nuggets within families and it just kind of points to the importance of that oral tradition of history that, sure, you've got to be careful with. it. Yeah, you do take it with a pinch of salt. But at the same time, if you're scrupulous in how you piece it all together, you can end up with some brilliant results like this book. And I think, you, yeah, I mean, that was the joy for me was it was a constant. Oh, my goodness, look at that. And I, and I think that's why I took the decision to write the book the way I did, that it's not just Joseph's story. It's the story of how I got to the bottom of that story, because I think that's interesting for family historians, as you say, to, to realise that, that these bits of information are there. And sometimes you don't realise how important they are. So what I've done in the book is try to go through these moments of revelation that sort of think, oh, my goodness, of course, that's what it means, because that is interesting, I think, in itself. So what's next? You know, you, you've done two belters of books. Oh, thank you. <laughs> where where do you go from here? Because um, I'm a fan. I think oh, a lot thank of our you. listeners are going to be fans. So what are you working on? Because we want well, to know what the next interview is going to be, right? And I don't time. know. I don't know. Well, I'm realising I'm 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 a Victorian Edwardian person, I think. I think this is where I find it. And certainly with Widows of the Ice, which we talked about last time, is um sits in that niche and I was very keen for the second book to write about women so I've, I've done that and I really enjoyed that um I don't know I've got a, I've got a few ideas I'm not sure I'm ready to share them yet but I know it's got to be something I'm really passionate about because it's a lot of mental energy isn't it a lot of space it's got to be something that you really I mean as my husband said why don't you just start researching something because clearly that's the bit you enjoy and I think it's true I miss doing the research so I know I'll have to start researching something soon just stick a pin in the list and take <laughs> yeah. it from there. Sometimes research projects are as simple as that. Yes, you it could be. A single thread. <laughs> and it's been brilliant to have you back on. From the Mill to Monte Carlo, it's available from Ambly. It's been out a little while, folks. We'll make sure it's in the History Hack bookstore. I'll spare you the rant about Amazon and Bezos and Rocket Fuel and all the rest of it. Go buy the book because we've given you the teasers, but you want to know the big reveal. Um, we, we were very deliberate in making sure that you were teased uh, and were left itching to pounce on, on buying this. So go buy the book. It's, it's fantastic. Also, while you're there, why not pick up a copy of Widows of the Ice, the women that Scott's Antarctic expedition left behind? And brilliant to speak to you. Please hurry up and write another one so we can have you back and interview <laughs> Thank for that. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 